everybody, welcome to New World Pictures Podcast. We've got an, another interview for you. I think you're really going to get excited. I'm Ryan, with me as always is Mark. Super excited. And Erica? I'm going to get excited. Okay. <laughs> yeah, take this opportunity to get excited. We hope you're excited too, because it is New November. We have already had our first episode of Sweet Kill, so if you've not heard that, go back, check it out. It's all the noir ish films that new world pictures released <laughs> we're going to try and talk about them uh this year next year until we get through all of them and there's so many maybe that <laughs> new world put out <laughs> um and uh, uh but we do have one and this is a movie that we actually discussed earlier this year in january top of the year we started out the new year talking about crimes of passion. Oh, so go fun. back. A fun, a fun, fun movie. Fun mm. movie about fun people doing fun stuff. I mean, that the between the uh the the water what did he have? He had little water he had balloons tied to his feet and he was imitating a, it's just memorable a, and it's just fun putting putting a little mustard on the edit of a hot dog and putting it by your crotch and surprising yeah. your wife delighting your wife delighting your wife humor. i mean that's your, these are yeah. scenes of a fun movie this is yeah that is a fun film and uh so you can go back and listen to our episode about it but that one is certainly i think much more of a noir a neo-noir kind fun of film noir. fun noir there aren't many fun, fun noir is, movies. Yeah. When people talk about noir films, they don't talk enough about the fun noirs, like Crimes of Passion, uh, which it clearly is. And clearly. Uh, so we luckily uh, got to interview Donald P. Borchers. He's a producer and worked with New World Pictures at the time that Roger Corman sold the company and came in and he produced Children of the Corn and Angel. You can... Listen to another interview we did last month in Corntober, and when we talked to him about those, and you can listen to our uh, episode, our, inter- our interview with him on that. This episode is going to concentrate on Crimes of Passion, Angel, and also we're going to talk about Tough Turf, which is another movie that we have already Not discussed. Noir. I mean, high school noir. It's still, I'd high say school. fun noir. It's fun I, noir. This, <laughs> this fun. one's, I, I would say musical noir. If noir mm, came in right. musical form, mm. this is it. You're like, hey, this is a noir film starring a high school kid who rides a bike. And <laughs> and he's tough. And he's tough. And he likes and to he... break into country clubs and go to, you know, clubs and uh, where they're playing cool music. And uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah like that's to steal an it. occasional car now and again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but we, we were overdue talking to, to Donald Borchers about Tough Turf. We, we have yet to speak to anyone from Tough Turf. So this, is, uh, this was great to be able to talk to somebody about it. Hopefully, we'll talk to other people about Tough Turf. That was one that what made it into some top fives um, on our end of the year top five, mm-hmm. running top five. So yeah. that was, uh, you know, it's a big movie here for us. And uh, we're big fans of it. We're going to start the episode. We're going to go right into Crimes of Passion. So here it is, our second interview with Donald P. Borgers. Walter Koblenz, um summed it up the best after he saw the movie. Um, he walked up to me and he says, this guy, Fritz Kirsch, he's a shooter. Commercials, right? I said, yeah. He said, yeah, you can tell. And, and that really, I got a whole history lesson from Walter that one night in that simple conversation about the difference between a director like Ken Russell, who's going to interpret drama 
and leave you with um, a meaningful um, takeaway. You're, you're going to want to have a cup of coffee and a conversation after you watch what he just sent you through. Fritz is a shooter. He's, he's going to give you cinem c- cinematic execution that doesn't elevate or descend whatever you give him. He's going to shoot the fuck out of it. Right. I, right. I mean, you're not going to need to tell him to use gels and, and diffusion. He's going to bring that to the table. Right. But, Richie, yeah. But, but, but he's not going to make um, any of the parts better. You, you, like Ken Russell comes on to pre-production on Crimes of Passion. We had already made a play for every A-list director um, for, for, for the lead. We came an inch close from, from Jeff Bridges, almost got him, but at the mm-hmm. last, he had conflicting dates with Starman. And so he jumps on Starman with John Carpenter's third of our movie. We, he, he was real interested and real interested with Kathleen. And the girl's part was a competition. Kathleen called for it. Kim Bassinger called for it. Uh, Jessica Lang called for it. Everybody wanted to work with Ken. It was, it was an embarrassment of riches. But now it's the first day of rehearsal. And Ken comes back and it says, I, I want to rewrite the script. Can we, we have a green light movie. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I don't I don't know that I can support this, but yet I've been told by my casting director, Linda Francis, that I should be in awe of you. I should lay down prostrate and worship at your feet. And so this is me laying down prostrate and worship at your feet. What do you want to do, buddy? And, and he says, um, well, the first thing I, I want to make Anthony Perkins um, like a priest. And, and I said, now, you know, Bob Ramey is a deacon in this church. I, I, I said, um, you know, he'll never approve this. He mm-hmm. says, I, I was told that you're the hottest shit producer in town. You telling me you can't figure out how to get Bob Ramey to, to approve this? I said, well, you know, he probably won't speak to me again, but yeah, I could figure out how to do it. But, but yeah. <laughs> so Bob was well known for being in what, um, what Fred Weintraub used to call the clean desk club. And he said, never trust an executive at a studio who has a clean desk. <laughs> and, 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 and i said why is that he says because it means all he's going to do is take credit for other people's work oh wow and, and, and he's got no work of his own to show because he's not doing anything so the thing that's most notorious if you ever meet bob ramey he, he lives in the clean dust club mm. so i figure i'm gonna i'm gonna get bob to sign off on this because if bob signs off on it it's it's un, unsign offable so when you know that somebody lives in the clean desk club you know that they're not going to read a 40-page document if you give it to them. So now the number becomes down to how many pages would they actually read? If it's a half a page, they'll probably read it. Right. If it's, if, it, if it's three pages, they might read the first and the end and maybe skip the middle. So I came up with a magic number of like seven pages. I said, if, if I write them seven pages that are mostly repetitive, but on fa- page four, there's an approval, he won't even know he approved it. And that's exactly what I did. And I, and I go in and I sign because everything had to be signed for the bond company. You know, if there's a, a script change, a page change yeah, or whatever. Yeah, anything changes, yeah. Yeah. And so all the, all the pages then got attached to the seven-page document. Um, and, and, and I think I figured out a way that it didn't say preacher. You know, it said something like, um, you know, man talking or something. I forget. But I, I went beyond myself to have a special script for Bob that, that, that I could send to the bond company and it's approved. So now we're in daily. And, and, and Bob just watches dailies with me because he's going to shout orders at me. But again, being in the clean desk club, he doesn't take any notes. So he's the kind of guy to have a meeting with you and then ask you what he said last time he talked to you, if you can believe that. <laughs> and, and, and so um, 
racist. The, the fuck is Anthony Perkins doing wearing a priest collar in this movie? <laughs> I said, you approved that two weeks ago, Bob. <laughs> Show me. And, and, and <laughs> Steve Ransahoff used to, to, to keep a joke about how I would always carry a three ring binder that had every approval that I got in writing. And every time somebody said, show me where I approve that writing, I'd be like an asshole opening up to page, whatever, <laughs> and showing them where they approved it. And yeah. everything, everything I did, I got pre-approved in writing or just like um, a Republican and Democratic uh, Congress, I would threaten to hold the budget. Mm-hmm. I go, we, we didn't approve it in writing or you shut down the picture. I don't care which, it's not my money. But I'll tell you this, I'm not going to get blamed later. Right. And so... Um, yeah, I probably have the most thorough approvals. They're, they're actually at this point archived at the Academy under the Donald P. Borcher's uh, collection. I have 36 linear feet of approvals <laughs> <laughs> archived at the Academy. Archived. Um, wow. Um, hey, uh, so, yeah, so, so speaking of... So, so, so the second okay. thing Ken says is, and so I got that done for Ken. The second thing Ken says is, I think it'll be a much stronger picture if we change the lead writing it to either Mm -hmm. Anthony Perkins or Kathleen Turner. He says, or even Bruce Davison. He says, and I'll just tell you this after having been in in four days of rehearsal. Okay. And and I said, well, no, this is the cast you got. You, you approved them, buddy. You know, you signed off on it. I got your signature here in the book and you said John Lachlan could do it. So now you got to make him do it. And and he said how much better a movie it would be if, if, if I would give him the latitude or whatever. I said, I can't get behind this. I said, all you had to do up front was not approve John Laughlin and I could get behind that. But you approved him and we've been in rehearsal. Now you got to make it work. That's your job. That's what we're paying you for. There was only one argument that I nodded with Ken that we couldn't resolve. Very early on um, in the location scouts that he was not approving locations that took more than about 10 minutes to drive to from the Hollywood Hills. Like um, the exterior of Kathleen Turner's home. That's actually an apartment on Primrose in um, Beachwood. You know, uh, <laughs> and, and so when we got to the um, to, to the the scene where it's the security store, he, he liked this place over on Gower across from um, the supermarket that keeps changing its name on on on. Um, I forget the name of all the streets of the Franklin. And, and so um, we're at Bronson and Franklin and, and looking at the shopping center. And I said, Ken, here's the thing. Even with traffic control, you're not going to get your sound here. It's going to be the longest day of the shoot. We got coming off of it. We're going on to a day that we got a pre-rig downtown the next day. And, and I said, no, this is not approved. And then he read me the riot act. And who did I think I was? And, and all he was thinking about was getting here 10 minutes after waking up in the morning. And I knew it. And I called him out on it. And I said, okay, Ken, you're going to have the worst day of your life on this day. And I'm not going to have, have much sympathy for you because I'm going to have reasons to not be on the set. So you're going to have crew unrest. And I'm going to tell everybody in, in the production meeting and pre-production how long this day is going to be, why this day is going to be long. And you, they have you to thank for it. He says, you can do that in pre-production and you're wrong. Well, I wasn't wrong about everything. It was long to stay on the schedule and everybody was in a pissy mood. So to try and to break some humor, Linda Francis says, you know, Barry has another one of these new ideas. I, I said, what's that? He's, he thinks Anthony Perkins should have a miniature dog, you know, like how Paris Hilton has a little dog. <laughs> and, and, and he thinks Anthony Perkins should have this little dog. And Anthony's really keen on the idea. And Ken says, now, mind you, he's halfway through an unmakeable day. I've stopped in to rub it in. I have, I'm merciless with the guy. And um, I, by the way, I produced his bachelor party. We were great friends. Um, and and uh, 
and, and, and you could tell that things needed to be lightened up. And an idea was happening right in front of us. Um, when, when, when Barry comes in and he says he's, he's contacted the animal trainer and the animal trainer is willing to bring the dog to the set with Anthony to read the lines during the dinner break on our fucking 18 hour day. Right. And uh, if Ken, if Ken could indulge. So now Barry leaves the room waiting for Ken to make a decision. Ken's asked me to stay to um, uh, consigliere. And, right. um, and, and so he says, what do you think? I said, I think the thing you do, we're on a budget having an animal. Here's a stupid fucking idea. He says, yeah, but it's such a droll day today. And, and Margarita time's going to be so delayed. And, and doesn't one need a bit of a jolly? <laughs> and, I, and, and I said, what, 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 do you, what do you get in that? He says, call the animal trainer and tell him that I prefer a monkey. He says, you're, you're a hotshot producer. You can do anything, right? So I actually know, you know, Sled Reynolds and Boone Nari, the, the biggest trainer, because I did the fucking Beastmaster and I know all these guys. And so I said, I need you to bring a dog out for Barry, but I need you to bring a monkey out for Ken. And he says, what? And he says, yeah, yeah. And, and, and any special requests? Yeah, Ken wants him to wear a diaper. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so Barry um, comes in with Tony and they do the reading with the dog and Barry's all proud that he's made the case. And Ken says, Barry, you're onto something, but you're underthinking it. And then he has me bring the fucking monkey in with the diaper. <laughs> and he, the, the, donkey, the monkey's playing with, um, with Tony's face. He's rubbing his everything. And, 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 he, and it's being a general embarrassment that would really be degrading. And Barry gets how, how bad this idea is. Right. And Ken says, I'm sold. It's the monkey. Decision made. And then he leaves. <laughs> so now I'm, I'm sitting there in the trailer with Barry and the trainer and the monkey. <laughs> and, Tony, and Tony leaves because because they got to go back to work. Right. And, um, and now Barry starts crying. He's like, Todd, you have to get me out of this. We can't have a monkey in the movie. <laughs> and, and, and I say, you Barry, I'll get you out of this, but you're going to owe me one, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's amazing. Now, I understood from Barry, I think, that he mentioned in an interview that that making crimes of passion there was like a push by i think jonathan axelrod in general who want they that they want new world wanted to make more sophisticated pictures is that why crimes of passion here's exactly how it got me i was the only one there i uh, was happy to understand that our first movie would be angel i was delighted that our second movie would be corn and i was given an opportunity to consider Barry Sandler producing Ken Russell's Crimes of Passion. My first thing was, where's the producer on the movie? This is a writer. And my second thing was, who's Ken Russell? And um, Linda Francis uh, took me to school on why I should be ashamed of not uh, worshiping this man's art. And, and I then realized that I had, in fact, seen Isadora Duncan growing up. And, um, and, and, uh, and I had, in fact, seen Tommy Toon. And um, I didn't put it together that he had directed those. And, and so uh, I started to really get it, but, but I, I still passed on it because I said, but here's the thing. I just did Angel and it's another story about a hooker. And I said, here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Are we going to be New World Picture, a company that principally does action, street, exploitation movies, which is the vision that I had, or are, are we going to like become, you know, little ladies of the night factory? And I passed on it for that reason. 
Axelrod brought it back simply because it had Ken Russell attached as a director. And his argument, and I agreed with his argument, was we're never going to get better actors here until we get better directors. And this is an ugly duckling. This is a movie we can get. It's been passed on by every studio in town. The only action it has right now is MGM, which is willing to line the writer's pockets with cash, but then boot him as a producer. If we give him a producing credit, then, then, then we can afford the movie here. And I said, so what am I, chump change? And they said, well, no, we've been thinking about it, and we want to, for the first time, start to give you a Donald P. Borchers presentation credit in the front, Donald P. Borchers production. This will be the first movie you get it on. Hmm. And I said, I said, and then it's going to say co-produced by me. I said, okay, I guess everybody will get it. I said, so my only bet is that I'm going to lose out on the Academy Award. I said, I read the script. I don't think it's a, <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, they, they may not go for that at the Academy. <laughs> but, you know, oddly enough, uh, Kathleen Turner did win the New York Film Critics Best Actress Award for it. Oh, well, deservedly and, so. She's amazing yeah. in the movie. And if you look at the interviews she gave all throughout the 80s into the 90s, she always made it a point when, when a video crew came over to sit in front of that poster because of, mm. of that award. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. yeah. Well, she's, yeah. I mean, she's amazing. And again, uh, Linda put together another great cast. Um, yeah, so, we're up in, so we're up in San Francisco and we sneak preview the movie for the first time. We're playing it for an audience. And, and we actually are full of ourselves thinking that we hit this out of the park. And the first 10 minutes plays. And now... I mean, I'm breaking my arm, patting my own back. And now we're at the first act breaks and, and it's planned in this in the first half and it's planned and the second half turns and it's planned. And then it gets to the end of the movie. And then it just felt like the movie stopped and didn't end. And you could feel it in the room. You didn't need words. Everybody had the same feeling. And then it got booed. And so um, Ken takes me out for drinks afterwards. I mean, we're with all the salespeople and Bob, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And Harry what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And Ken was surprised. And, and, and um, I had made a number of suggestions during the making of the uh, rehearsal when all the rewriting was being done for Anthony Perkins and shifting things around with Kathleen Turner and such um, and, and expanding parts and reducing parts, but keeping all the roles the same. And Ken was summarily ignoring most of my advice in explaining to me things like he watched Angel and he thought that it was a comedy and he didn't get it as an action picture and he thought it should be re-released in black and white and he talked about my sensibilities as a filmmaker and why uh, they were not good for this movie uh, but did he like the job I was doing so now we just get booed and now he splits me off and we're in one of those fancy ass San Francisco things where the cocktail lounge spins 360 and everything and he pulls me to the opposite side and we're spinning around on the top of the world and he says what would you do i said what do you mean i said this is your movie you you haven't wanted to hear from me about these things yet he says but i just played it for an american audience you're american you have a good sensibility about things you changed the ending on angel you told me the whole story um how would you change this ending and i said well well, ken what it's crying out for is an american conclusion they want things to have a bow tie with a ribbon wrapped up as a present handed to them and explained with no questions asked. And then, and Ken says, okay, okay. You don't need to say another word. I know exactly what to do. I, I had the same argument with Sandy um, on Angel. Um, the original ending for Angel had her getting on a bus and going off to school that Cliff Borman paid for. 
Oh, and, okay. And, and we're playing it as a sneak preview in New York and get out of town. Andy Warhol's in the audience. You can't make this stuff up. He, he, <laughs> he saw Sandy's ad about this high school uh, hooker and wanted to see the movie. That was mm-hmm. right up Andy's alley. I'm like, yes, please. And so I, I noticed that it's Andy Warhol. So um, we're, we're holding everybody for... Um, uh, what do you call focus groups um, questions after the screening to, to figure out what to do. And I could tell the movie was playing, but it was having a hard time playing and, um, and the ending didn't work. And I, and, and I asked uh, um, Andy, if he would stay for the focus group, he says, no, but I'll tell you two things. He says, I, I know what you're doing with the music. He, he says, you put all songs in for the soundtrack and, and you can make a deal where you don't have to pay him anything. He said, get your pocketbook out and pay for a composer. And the second, and the, and the second thing he says is, and fix your ending, it doesn't work. Now, Sandy Howard and I had had a long running dispute on the ending and, and they ended up then shooting what I told Sandy he should shoot originally, um, which is Rory Calhoun showing up, not dead. In, in the mm-hmm. original script, in the original movie, Rory Calhoun dies when Rory Calhoun dies. Oh, and wow. when point yeah, and when they're cornered in the alley, at this point in my life, I'm having a hard time remembering exactly what happened, but but it wasn't satisfying. It, it okay. was like okay. if either if either the cop shot the bad guy or the girl shot the bad guy, I, I, I'd have to go back and recreate everything, but it didn't work either way. What needed to happen was Rory Calhoun had to come back with a hand over his mortal wound saying, ah, nothing but a flesh wound. And, 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 and killed the guy. And it had to be, and it had to be a deus ex machina. And, and I knew this. I knew this from having watched um, The Sting. And, you know, he's not really dead. And that's why it works. I said, no, what makes this work, Sandy, is that Rory Calhoun isn't really dead. And, and Sandy, but he's not the lead character. I said, it doesn't matter. You don't want to see this little girl kill this boy. You want to see mm-hmm. her saved. You don't want to see her do it. And I said, nobody's really going to believe she goes off to boarding school. So then um, with this $4 million offer for, for Brandon Tartikoff, um, the purse strings opened and I was given $120,000 to reshoot the ending and hire any composer I wanted. I called Gorfane Schwartz and they said, we got this guy, Craig Safan, he's about to break big. And, and he did, he did Cheers. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and he did a score for us that's so memorable. Here, I could still hum it to you. <laughs> it is it's a great score yeah i mean it, it he's that good so yeah. so yeah with changing the score and changing the ending that knocked that out of the park and, and um for crimes of passion what do you remember what the original ending was for that um i i think the original ending um was proximate to uh the scene with the scissors and kathleen turner and killing killing anthony perkins mm. and i think i think the movie just stopped at, at the murder oh okay. but i tell you what okay. was i tell you what was funny about putting that that, that ken came up then with the wraparound he said okay we got to wrap it up then since he started in therapy we have to end it in therapy it'll be a bookend movie in the american and i said ken i think you're onto something so um we we i had the same production manager from angel on crimes of passion which in hindsight wasn't a good idea because he was really good at the kind of, um, oh, you know, Charles Band, uh, maybe, right. uh, uh, who would be another good example? Ross Meyer, you know, kind of low-budget production. Sure. Um, he was an exploitative you, uh, master. 
And that's a good way of describing this production manager. And let me say one, one anecdote about this. So I'm, I'm, I'm walking onto the soundstage for the mix of Angel. And as everybody knows, that's the last thing you do on the movie after it's photographed, edited, scored, the last thing. And I pass our old production offices. He's still casting the naked extras for the shower scene. <laughs> wow. That's the kind of guy I'm working with, right? So, <laughs> so I told him I needed um, a set. And, and that what we were going to do was um, blah, 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 um, recreate the opening. And we had this thing where we had to burn something. So he gets this really cheap, cheap, cheap set. It's got no fucking ventilation. After we filmed everything and the last thing we did was the burn, we smoked out the place and the fire department's coming. And, and, and my last recollection of me and this production manager was, adios, you deal with the fire department. I'm getting Ken to the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> so were you around at all for the editing process i know there's a lot for crimes of passion oh, yeah. to try to to edit it down from because they kept you kept getting an x yeah. rating and that of course was was a big you know point of contention whether or not you keep the x rating or go down to an r rating and oh it was never a contention new world was never going to accept an x the, the movie okay. theater leases don't allow an x they always they always wanted to the, the problem was that ken didn't have anything in his contract that required him to deliver an R-rated film. He had every right legally to deliver an X-rated film. See, isn't that a funny position to be in if you're if you're the, the, the producer? Sure. Oh yeah, because now you got to figure out a way to get him to get it an R rating so you can actually release the movie. Or what I did, figure out a way to actually get him an X rating so he could release the movie. Right, because wasn't it released on video in, in both versions? Yeah, so, so what happens is the first stop is the MPAA, and they make their, their list telling you what they think they need to cut. Now, I make a strong argument to the MPAA that's an art film, and, and I make an argument that's so strong, I might actually convince them. Because, you know, for, for the scenes that have graphic nudity, they're all cross-cut with images of erotic paintings from the Tate Gallery in England. I mean, we've got Magritte paintings in there. I mean, you name it. Um, it, the, the film is full of art. So, so when the Supreme Court ruled on pornography, I don't know, but I know it when I see it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, 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 said, I said, when I start to show you reviews for this movie, you're going to see a lot of artful reviews and a lot of nominations. You're gonna, I was making a, a pretty winning argument. So that's what New World said. They were just going to take the film and cut it. That's when I said to Ken, how much do you want to argue here? He said, what do you mean? I said, my mama was Italian and she taught me how to never lose an argument. Um, <laughs> if, you, if, you, if, you, if you want to win this argument, I said, all I have to do is get in my car, go over to all my friends at CFI, where, I mean, they took out an ad for me as like um, a poster boy of CFI producing. They paid for me a full page ad in, in Variety one day. I don't know why. And so I said, I know everybody at CFI, you know. All I got to do is report over there and tell them that I am picking up the cut and conformed original negative 10 reels. And then I put it in my trunk and I take it to a safe house where, where film is vaulted and I don't tell anybody, including you, which one it is. He said, do it. And I did it. Wow. So, so, so now Bob Ramey calls me up and, and, and he tells me how I've lost everything. I'm just going to have it cut. I said, good luck with that, Bob. <laughs> he said, what are you getting at? I said, try and find it. I'm going to have you arrested. I'm going to have you sued. And I said, and you're going to have no release date. I said, no, why don't we come together and make some decisions that everybody can live with? And he said, okay, set up a meeting with Ken. So I set up a meeting with Ken. Ken goes to the meeting 
this is a man I've never seen in a T-shirt. And he goes to the meeting in a Mickey Mouse T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's amazing. It was, it was a wow. So yeah. now um, I'm bringing the argument over to Barbara Boyle at, at Orion. And, and this is my winning strategy to Ken. I said, Ken, now here's a woman. It, it, we're going to have no misogyny here. We're going to make the argument that Kathleen Turner's terrific. Going to make the argument with a little bit more push from our foreign distributor, Orion. We can knock this down to an R rating from, from, from an X. And, and we can get all your wishes. Just be nice to Barbara. Please just be nice to Barbara. And, and so we go, to, we go to meet Barbara and she's just screened the movie. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the movie, but the main difference between the unrated version and the rated R version mm-hmm. has to do with the scene, with one, with one scene only, with Kathleen yeah. Turner picking a po- up a, a, a police officer, right? A guy who's dressed like a cop. Right. And, and, yeah. and, then, and, then, and then sodomizing him with a nightstick. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's the, the act of sodomy with the nightstick that the MPA said crossed the line. Mm-hmm. And and we were arguing it was a misogynistic argument because it's the mm-hmm. woman doing it. Sure. And 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 we th- and I thought with Barbara I could win the argument. I really did. And so we showed to Barbara and and, and Barbara sits down and, and she said I just watched the movie and I understand that this, the scene that's an issue. And she's Ken. I just want to tell you, I think that's one of the most disgusting moments in cinema I have ever seen, and I agree with the MPAA. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And then, and, and then, and then I, I, I looked at Ken and, and I tried to, and I, and I don't know where it came from. I just shot from the hip. And I remembered this from something with Caligula or something. And I said, would it be possible to release both versions? One with this scene and one without. And she said, I would support that. And, and then we went back to New World. And then that created the bridge, uh, the golden bridge for Ken to retreat across, according to Sun Tzu's rules of war. And Ken, um, for what for an R-rated version, uh, addressed that criticism, and for the unrated version, went out his cut. And I, I, I'll never forget the day we were uh, at the same theater in Westwood. I think it was called the Crest. Um, it was the same one Chariots of Fire had played at, and uh, and we had just had our first screening, and the press is there, and I'm standing next to Ken when the people from Channel Whatever are standing in front of him with the microphone and and asked him what he thought about everything and, and they knew about the controversy and he held out his hand and he says if somebody told you and then he motioned to have four of his fingers removed that you would lose that and then he motioned to his wrist the whole hand removed he says what really is the difference <laughs> <laughs> and then he walked away and that was his whole interview <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, part, partly I, my understanding of, of doing the movie with Ken Russell was to hopefully like make more Ken Russell movies. But no, it, it was it was to get cast. It was, yeah, it was oh, a, 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 bar- a barrier with agents. I see. Like, we don't we don't put people in New World Pictures. Kathleen Got it. In it. Yeah, it, it, yeah. It, it was to sort of did. just raise the level of what New World, the respectability for the for the company. Yeah, I got a producing deal at Live Entertainment the same way. When Roger Burlidge took over at Live, and it was still a video company, and we're talking circa 98-ish, give or take, um, Rene Aram, who had done Voodoo for me, um, he, he, he was good friends with um, that redheaded guy from CSI, um, uh, 
yeah, the guy, yeah, exactly. The guy from uh, uh, the guy from CSI Miami, right? Yeah, him, him, and and he he was extraordinarily bankable in the late nineties. Uh, David Caru- David Caruso, pardon David me. David Caruso. Yeah, he was good friends with David Caruso. So David Caruso had written what I had thought was perhaps one of the worst screenplays I had ever read, and <laughs> and and um and 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 Renee said it was available, and I said, well, I would love to produce that. And my thinking was the old bait and switch. You just get him situated in a production company. They bring on a real director. They bring on a real writer. And all of a sudden, it's a good project. And, um, and I'd be producing it. And that, that was my strategy. Okay. So, so um, I, I, uh, uh, I can't remember his name. He used to run production at Disney. And, and, and I called him up first. And he said, you really have David Caruso's next project? And he'd been turning everything. I'd given him Joan Severance, number one. Uh, uh, excuse me, Angel of Desire, and I'd given them Chad McQueen's number one fan. And he says, look, I get that these are commercial pictures. We're not going to do a touchstone. And, um, and he says, Borges, you finally nailed it. We'll do this. And, and, and then they went, and, and Caruso made it very clear. He was going to direct it. His writer was going to write it. And they weren't going to hear from anybody else. Hmm. And, and so, so I couldn't sell the movie anymore except the same thing. I remembered why we made Crimes of Passion, and I remembered the problem that Paul Almond said he was having it live, getting real filmmakers over there, because they weren't known for making any movies. And right. I said, well, I said, well, here's the thing. If you're willing to pay me $25,000, I can set up David Caruso's picture here. You can tell him he's directing it. You can tell him they're writing it. And if they don't take your development notes, crash the movie. But while you're developing it, cast your other three pictures. You're doing David Caruso's next movie. They did, we did, I did, and we did. And, and the movie never got made. But, but so, it, it solved the problem. So do, do, using that story as an example, do you, were, are there any films you can think of that sort of then got made at New World Pictures as a result of Crimes of Passion? Um, well, gosh, everything. I, I mean, Mace Newfeld was on the fence of whether or not he wanted to produce there. Um, who who was the guy that did Soul Man? That producer, he's a big guy. Uh, let me, I I'm trying to think of the guy's name who produced it. I know Steve Miner, of course, uh, directed it. Directed uh, Steve it. Steve Tish. That's it, Steve Tish. He he was on top of the world and had no reason to be working at the world, and and that moved him over there. Um, they wanted to buy the TV series Santa Barbara. They had the money. There was an offering that was going up with public money and they could do it, but um, that was, it helped put them over. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it made a big difference. So, and Mace Newfeld uh, produced uh, Transylvania 65,000. That's what, uh, that, so it sort of brought that kind of, and the, and, and the Punisher as well. Um, yeah. I mean, let me say the fact that Mace is dealing with, with, with New World and that Steve Tisch is dealing with New World. That, that broke down every door for any agent at CAA, William Morris, uh, ICM, that nobody had any problems anymore. We, we were, don't, don't count us out because of Corman. And don't count <laughs> us out because of Angel. You know, we're, right. we're here. Right. We're, we're... I had read, uh, too, that um, when Larry Cuppin moved on from uh, New World Pictures and he set up his own company, he was hoping to make Crimes of Passion 2, amongst other sequels, was there any discussion of a sequel uh, at the time that the movie was released? Or was that just something just first, he was... This the first time hearing of it. It, wow. it. And it wouldn't surprise me because he did make sequels for Angel and he did make sequels for Hellraiser and he would have liked to make more sequels if he could. Right. Uh, 
Right. I, and I, so is that is, is he the reason why you didn't work on Avenging Angel? It's inexplicable to me why I didn't work on Avenging Angel. Um, yeah. I really felt that I was the heart and soul of Angel. And I was doing Tough Turf when Avenging Angel got announced. And when it got announced, I, I was blindsided. I mean, Bob O'Neill didn't tell me he was developing anything. Sandy didn't tell me he was talking to anybody. Mel and Don didn't tell me. I, I was just simply forgotten. I don't think I was huh. even ignored. I, 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 don't think it would, like, I don't think anybody went out of their way and said, cut him out. Or let's get rid of him. I just think they kind of forget what I do sometimes. Hmm. Oh, okay. I mean, that, yeah. Look at, it, look at my look at my production of Angel and look at the two derivatives. I did no no comparison. Yeah, and it, and it definitely feels weird that you weren't involved in that. Um, let's talk about Tough Turf a little bit. It's a favorite around here. Um, Thank you. And, and was heart. And, and is that was that a uh, was that a, was that was Donald your brain child, right? on, That's Donald T. Borch's on a plate. That's what happens when I actually get to make a movie and nobody gets in my way. That's what happens. I was um, loving to go out at night and experience life in Los Angeles. And so I used to go to um, the uh, sold out over on um, Sunset. And then it closed and reopened in 81 as Club Lingerie. And um, it had like this 40-foot bar. And then you could go up to the second level. It was like a private lounge. And nobody was there. So I could have meetings and friends. And it was like it was my own private VIP love. We could smoke joints and do whatever we wanted and and nobody was there and then it's it started to book some bands and they started to book the the new romantic movement and right. they got this they got adam this bartender. adam and the ants and and, and that kind of uh music it was more like duran duran yeah and um, yeah and, and so um they got this chinese bartender that roller skated when she was bartending so she'd skate up and down the bars while you're doing the drinks and then one night um uncharacteristically jack map and the heart attack rolls in on a tuesday and, and i'm going there like three four times a week because i can walk there from my place i don't have to drive home after drinking and um, i live in hollywood and, and so um i'm digging this band and and i realized that in my entire 26 years on earth i haven't really really ever listened to r&b i mean i don't really know at this point in my life otis Pickett, Wilson Pickett or, or Otis Redding or any of these mm -hmm. people. And, and, and here comes Max Gronenthal, who had just been the front for, uh, what was it, Grand Funk Railroad or somebody, I forget which band. And now he's doing his own thing with Jack Mack and the Heart Attack. And, and they're lighting this place up. And, and they sing this song. And it just knocks me on my favorite place. And, <laughs> and, 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 and it's T-U-F-F, She's So Tough. It's a cover. And I, right. I never heard it. I, everything they play is a cover. It's an R&B standards cover. I mean, they cover Green Onions like nobody's business. Um, that's why I put it in Tough Turf. So I see this band and, 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 and everything hits me as soon as I hear T-U-F-F, She's So Tough. It's a novation. I saw the framework of an entire movie in a split second. And I saw the title was Tough Turf. T-U-F-F, T-U-R-F. So imagine as I'm making the movie, Bob Ramey comes on board and um, from Universal. And the first thing he does is suggest we change the title to Rules Don't Apply. <laughs> I, I'd, like to, I, I, I'd like to kill him. I mean, I'm like, no, we have the definitive title, Bob. It's definitive. It, it works top to bottom. I'm four letters on four letters, the artwork, the graphics, spray paint, T-U, it's everything. You couldn't ask for more in a title. It does everything. I had to fight him tooth and nail. It, it, really? It, it, 
And God bless the fact that um, Raphael Zelinsky was making a movie. I think it was called Fun Park or something. Um, it was a James Orr script. And, yeah, and, um, it was a State I, Park, I believe. I No, I, I think it was Fun Park. But, but the point is it got released under the title Breaking the Rules. I, I told oh, Bob okay, that it was okay, okay. such a good movie. It would be wasted on my movie. And Raphael deserved it. <laughs> wow. I knew so he, he did was get this that movie on something and I didn't want it to be mine. <laughs> so you were, God, man, Bob Ramey. He's a piece of work, that man. He's a piece of work. He, he's somebody who built an entire career taking credit for things. Huh. Every, every good movie he produced, you can credit Mace Neufeld for. That's the other name on every good movie he produced. Well, Mace hmm. was a producer before he met Bob. He, he was paying Bob back with a parachute deal for helping him at New World. Mm-hmm. No, Bob, Bob's greatest art is self-promoting Bob. And nobody can self-promote like Bob can self-promote. Hmm. He got himself as, as a buyer in the Cincinnati circuit into Avco Embassy Pictures. Yeah, I mean, that, that yeah. move itself was genius. And I think, well, yeah, I think that's because he was a buyer, I think, for New World Pictures back in the Corman era from Cincinnati, I believe. And I, that's what must have prompted him to then get into AVCO? Yes. I'm, AVCO, I'm not sure. Be, being an aviation company, when they were looking for, for um, executives, they actually held fucking interviews and you could actually submit a resume. Unheard of in the movie business. In the movie business, you get a job because somebody puts your arm around their shoulder and says, I vouch for him. And, and, and if they don't do that, you don't get a job. It's real simple math. Um, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes that arm is as simple as, you know, oh, he went to Columbia. So did I. Right. Yeah. But but yeah. it's always there. I mean, no, nobody actually gets hired. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't have stood a prayer getting in the movie business if Bob Agard wasn't a drinking partner with Robert Burlidge. Right. 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 If that if that didn't happen, I'm 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 doing, you know, something for for the travel business. Right. You're still living in Hawaii. <laughs> Probably would have gone back. Money was yeah. too good. Yeah. Now, did you meet Rafal uh, Zelinsky? I know you eventually worked with him on Jailbait, but did you meet him through New World? Because I know he did uh, yes. screwballs yes. for so, New World. Whichever the was the one that ended up getting um, breaking the rules or don't break the whatever one. Um, that was the one he came in on. And he was really big on Crookshank and Orr. And I had this idea for a movie. And so um, I said to Rafal, I, I've been having some good and bad experiences. I don't have a lot of money. I can come up with maybe a few thousand bucks for a script. Like I paid four or 5,000 bucks to get vamp written. Same thing for Tough Turf and that kind of thing. I, I could scrounge some, uh, some, some money together, but not a lot. And I said, I could come up with a few thousand bucks, but I've got this great idea for a movie. Um, it's it's ca- called The Sixth Day. It was an original idea I had. And, and th- the idea was that, um, that there'd be a beautiful woman who was like an android. And, 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 and that was going to tie into the sixth day title that, you know, God created everything and then took a day rest. So the guy's a transporter and he just moves stuff from A to B, kind of like the movie, The Transporter, but set in outer space. But uh-huh. setting up, my movie my, my was always set in outer space. I'd never had I any see. designs on it, not being set in outer space. I, I was thinking Han Solo kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, and, and it's, in fact, come to think of it, it's very much like The Transporter because he, he, his cargo wakes up and he doesn't know he's got a live girl in the trunk, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. And, and so he, and Raphael says, well, I'm really good friends with Crookshank and Orr and, and I could probably get him to write it. And I said, but here's the thing. I don't want to see a script and then have to negotiate for comments. I want to approve an outline. I want to pr- approve a three act structure. 
and I want to give meaningful comments when a first draft's done. And, and I, want to, I want to really not write it, but get my commercial input into why I'm going to be able to sell this accomplished. And, um, you know, scenes with theatrical incident, you know, good ending, you know, stuff. Um, and, and Rafael, oh, no problem, no problem, no problem. And so he calls me up one day. I have good news. What? The script's finished. So we don't even have a contract, Rafael. <laughs> That's how I remember wow. Rafael. Wow. He ended up, ha- he ended up, ha- I never read the script. I said, I'm not, I can't read the script. I said, I'm going to develop my movie. I'm going to make my movie. I, I don't want to steal anything you did. Right. And if these guys want to work with me, well, let's start over. He's no, no, they've already finished the script. We can make this movie. And so um, I'll just buy you out. And so he gave me the few bucks and I didn't hold them up for anything. Did, and then, did they ever and then, make the movie? I don't think so. Yeah. I, yeah. It doesn't come to mind that that story other than like, at least not one in space. I know they did uh, steel and lace and Alan, Alan Holzman did a one called program to kill, but yeah, it doesn't strike me that, that I mean, having, having worked on Christmas in Wonderland and spent significant time uh, understanding James Orr, he doesn't strike me as the kind of guy that could write a first draft he'd want to shoot. Mm. And, and that's oh. what they had. So, I mean, so that, that that's, that's the way I left it. But what had happened was, um, I had made Desire in Hell at Sunset Motel years later, and I was in love with the writer-director, Alien Castle. I just thought he was a gifted, talented artist and, and underused and lots of potential. And because he did the score, when, when um, uh, Ken Badish at the movie store asked me to do Meatballs 4, I brought Alan Honest, the composer, because it was the only job available and he needed a gig. And, he, and Ken didn't get on with him, so he bounced him. And then the next gig I had available was directing Jailbait. But I said to, to Alan at, at the beginning, you know, this, this isn't like um, Desire in Hell. This isn't your work that I'm trying to realize. I said, this is a, a, a derivative exploitation thriller using B actors that are bankable, where everything hinges on a schedule and a budget. The whole game is margins. I said, if you're down for that and you'll shoot my schedule, I'll give you the gig. Well, after two days, he was a day behind schedule. So... At this point, I, not, I need somebody who's not only finish the movie, but can walk in, finish the movie, and pick up the day. I only had one name on my list, and it was Raphael Zelensky. Hmm. And, and he did just exactly what we, we wanted a director to do. He, he walked in the next day with a shot list that we could make, and we made it, and we went home. I mean, that, what more do you want? Yeah, exactly. Uh, speaking of, of, of a director who just can shoot, you brought in Fritz Kirsch to do Tough Turf. And uh, did, was he the first person you had thought of to direct that? Yeah, I had a really good experience on Corn, And um, the, the, the last three movies I made were Angel, Corn, and Crimes. Oh, excuse me, Angel and Corn. I hadn't made Crimes yet. Um, so um, if you think about it, on Angel, I had to do the same trick I did on Beastmaster and bring Roy Watts to the set to make shot lists. I had Andy Davis um, um, as my photographer due to a small miracle in life that found him having given birth to a, a wife, given birth to a newborn and having lost a job that was all lined up and available for the next six weeks, which were our six weeks. Like he had dates he couldn't fill. We got something that could never happen. If you watch our dailies on angel more times than not, you will hear Andy fucking Davis saying action and cut. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. I mean, if you want to know angel is so good because because Roy Watts gave him a shot list every day that he then shot. And, 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 and Bob O'Neill wrote it with Joe Calla, made contributions everywhere. 
bites. Look at the difference between Avenging Angel and Angel. Right. Uh, sure. Avenging Angel doesn't have Andy Davis shooting the movie. Wow. And that's the difference. It's yeah. Andy's the difference in the picture. It's it, hmm. Roy Watts could help anybody to the best of their ability. Andy's ability is off the charts. Right. Sure. Terrific director. The, the, the first draft of Angel, Bob and Joe wrote an action scene for the third act that if you were to cost it out, and I know budgeting, it, it, at a major studio in that year, that scene alone would have cost more than the entire cost of production of the movie. It was a $2 million action sequence in the third act. It had to do with turning buses over, running into lampposts, bringing lights down on Hollywood Boulevard during Christmas light time, you know, that kind of stuff. And so um, I sat down with the guys and I said, you know, we can't afford this, you know, so, so what are we, we really doing here? And I had this thing, and I don't know how full of shit I am in life sometimes, but I, I, I used this thing where I would say, we're going to produce through a thematic statement. We're going to thematically say what the theme being executed here is. We're then going to look at why it works at this budget. And then we'll each come up with an idea on how to execute that theme in a different way on a smaller budget. And, and it was Andy Davis that came up with the idea that, um, and he had done this on Stony Island, that if you take a, a baby carriage, which you can pick up at a Goodwill store for a dollar, and, and you cut a hole in it, you could drop an airy 2C in it. And because people forget that all of Hollywood Boulevard is carved terrazzo stone, all hmm. the sidewalks. Oh. It, th there is no smoother surface you can be than marble. So you run a baby carriage across Hollywood Boulevard sidewalk, it's better than laying dolly track. And, and then, you know, you do a little research and you have the same production manager that I was telling you about. And he knows from Russ Meyer days that um, if you put a sandwich board up on the corner and announce a legal disclaimer that you're filming a movie, anybody can be photographed. And that and probably was, go ahead, sorry. The only time that didn't really work was when they did that uh, Bruce Stern picture with the blimp. That, that sports movie, like seven seconds or something. I don't remember the name of the movie, um, but, but the problem there was they put the disclaimer on the printed ticket and, um, and they took a picture of a guy who was cheating on his wife. And so he won that lawsuit because it went above and beyond. They zeroed in on him in a close-up with a, this girl. I mean, can you imagine the dumb luck? But, um, right, right. But in my, in, in my, although I did get a crazy fan letter from a guy that, that um, before rotoscope was invented had, had said that he was on the motorcycle, but we changed his head. <laughs> but that's the world we live in. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, so angel um, came out really well with, um, with Andy at, 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 on camera with Roy in the editing room and, and with me getting a second run to bring Craig Safan on and with Linda Francis giving us an unbelievable cast. Bob, Bob and Joe couldn't understand why everybody passed on the landlord. And Bob at the time was very, very close friends with um, a character actor. Um, you see, I struggle remembering names. He, he, he's well known. He was in Cuckoo's Nest. And, um, and, and he did these kinds of things. And even he wouldn't do it for Bob. And, and the idea that was coming back from every agent that was rejecting this on behalf of their cast was saying, it's just so stock and unoriginal and, and so lifeless and so unimaginative and everything we've seen a million times in derivative, you get the idea. And I don't know where Linda says, let's go after Susan Terrell. You know, she got nominated for, what was that? She got nominated for something. I, I want to say Fat City, but I don't 
No, yeah, that's right. I, th- I think yes, yeah, Fat City, <laughs> uh, the John Houston movie. And, and and she she could knock it out of the park. And I know her agent, and, and she doesn't work as much as you think. And the idea of her getting cast as a what you wrote for a man. Uh, same thing happened on Streets of Fire. The Michael Perret foil, um, Ed Harris's wife. It's a man's part. She, she, oh, okay. Ed, Har- Ed Harris went in to read for something. She read the script and said, I could do this. And she demanded an interview and she got the part. It wasn't written for a woman. And if you watch it, you can realize, yeah. I mean, so we didn't even change a line for Susan Terrell. Like when Dick Sean says, I- I'm going to shoot your balls off, all eight of them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and she's terrific in the movie. I mean, that's how good Linda Francis is. Yeah. You know, it's like if this is the money and this is the script and this is what it is, well, then this is what it will take to make it interesting. Linda Francis, she was everything on every one of my movies. She was my cast on Angel, on Children of the Corn, on Crimes of Passion, on Vamp, on Tough yeah. Turf. Linda Francis cast those movies in, 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 in the same way that I said to the transpo guy, what should we do? I would say to Linda, who should play this? And, and these were the very, very few exceptions. On Tough Turf, Jonathan fucking Axelrod, he, he thought we had a play for Madonna because he was tight with somebody who knew somebody at William Morris. Mm-hmm. So we make an offer to Madonna. And I'm just simply asking him for an answer. Is she going to, you know, yes or no? No's okay. I can deal with no. No means move on. Not hearing is the problem. And in, in, in before the streamers started to dump hundreds of billions of dollars into production to switch the economics from demand side to supply side, it used to be a, a, a demand side problem. There was more supply than there was demand. So right. if, if you wanted to get Madonna a job, you didn't just sit back and wait for an offer, which is all. The, let me say, if you're representing anybody you can name today, that's all you have to do, because that's how many streamers are vying for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what they used to do and needed to do was they would take an offer that existed and then shop it around. That's how I lost Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Buck and I, Irene Webb took my offer to produce it for $10 million. I, I had um, the heir to the Marshall Fields, uh, Ted Fields. He was going to give me 10 million bucks. Keneally brokered the deal. The deal and, uh, and they just walked it around until Ivan Reitman made a better offer. And that's what they were doing with Madonna. In between those two, by 1984, I finally realized that as an independent, if I'm going to make an offer for anything, I have to put the time it expires. I can't let them just walk oh, me around forever. I, see, I, yeah. I, I, I have to tell myself that this offer stands for seven calendar days. And I have to tell myself if they haven't given the courtesy to respond after seven days, it was never going to happen, never in the ballpark. They were just going to use me. So sure enough, I find out that Madonna is literally, and I don't make this up, on her knees in Mike Metaboy's office, begging for desperately seeking Susan. They're telling us she's in Italy. <laughs> okay, right. Mike Metaboy's office is across the street from my office. I mean, I figured it out. We knew enough people. She couldn't get that close to me and keep it secret. Right. Like, like, Do you know Madonna's across the street? <laughs> oh, really? Let me take a walk over there and find out more. Um, so I, I pull the offer and then say to, um, to uh, Linda, we're going for Kim Richards. And she said, why? I said, because um, I watched Manny and the Professor and Escape from Witch Mountain. And I think that Kim Richards is the sexiest 19-year-old girl on the planet. And that's why. Yeah, and, and escape from Witch Mountain. I, you know, I had quite yeah. the crush when I was a kid. 
And if I had known about the cocaine problems, I probably wouldn't have cast her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you, you wish they would just say that like right up top so you can kind of make those decisions. Um, yeah, it's a great cast and it's such a good story. Um, and she pulls together another incredible cast in Tough Turf. I mean, again, Hello. Robert Downey Jr., a James Spader. I mean, just- Robert just... Downey Jr. was me. Um, what had happened oh, okay. was- Yeah, what, what would happen was- um, Linda had convinced me that I should meet uh, Senior because, uh, and, and so, you know, I had ability to screen movies. So I start to watch Pound and Greaser's Palace. And, and what's the big one he did um, with, with, with the advertising agency, um, Putney Swope. Put, Putney Swope, yes. Yeah, and, and I'm blown away. And I'm like, fuck, I want to meet Robert Downey Sr. Yes, I want to meet Robert Downey Sr. We came became fast friends for about five years before he relocated back to New York. And um, we used to go to the track all the time. I tell you some great Robert Senior track stories. <laughs> and, and, and so um, when she was in New York, she reads his kid for the, for the lead, for the lead in the movie, for, for, for the point of being a, a way for me to then have him come in and talk about his dad. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the whole play. <laughs> and, and, and so I send her to New York. She gets him on tape. We're about to fly him out to L.A. just for the express purpose of me setting up a new relation. Maybe I'm going to produce a Robert Downey Sr. movie, I'm thinking. And I almost did um, Hugo Poole. I came really close to being able to do it. Couldn't, I couldn't close. And, and he needed a closer. And I, 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 I wanted to do it. So, um, so everything's come up. And so now I'm looking at the footage and, and Spader was a, a shoe in like he comes in and, and his, his, his tape is perfect. And like, yeah, you know, we really don't know. Do you look anything else? And she goes, well, you know, you, you want to meet Downey. So you got to look at it. And I am on the floor and I'm like, this is one of the funniest people I have ever seen. He's just naturally charming. It, it's crazy how likable this guy is. Mm -hmm. and, and so I said, let's just enlarge the best friend. And he's the best friend. Now, we had an offer out to Crispin Glover for The Best Friend, who was clearly my first choice. But Crispin was doing something with Penelope Spheris and Nicolas Cage, boys, uh, something. And also for New World. And I found myself in the same position as I was with Madonna, with Crispin Glover. And I'm finding all of this out at the same time. He's never really going to do this movie. They're just using it to, okay, we're off of him. Give, make the offer to Downey, send it. And then, and then <laughs> I'm remembering the casting. When when um, Katya Sassoon, Vidal Sassoon's uh, daughter, came in to the right, room, right, she lied. She lied about her age because we were only seeing people who were emancipated or eighteen, and she was sixteen and not emancipated. So she comes. She lied about her age. She said she was eighteen, and and then and then she just gives you this look that only a Katya Sassoon can make, and said, "And I am Feather." The name of the girl was Feather. With that, <laughs> yeah. And she says, and I am Feather. And I look at Linda Francis and Linda just nods. Yep, she's Feather. That's why she's here. <laughs> I mean, uh, I was so allowed to make the movie that they let me hire. Now, nobody gets to do this making exploitation movies. And I was just really good running numbers around. So I never made it a point where, let me just put it this way. You can hide an awful lot of money in the payroll tax account. And no studio executive will ever be the wiser that you can then pull out later and use it for something. And I pulled mine. I did that. I hid the money and I pulled it out later and I used it for um, dancing because I know nobody was going to let me hire a choreographer, rent a stage for four weeks and have 40 dancers rehearse for a month. No, you're not allowed to do that at New World. And I knew that. 
So that's, I just hid the money. Um, I got an introduction to Bob Bannis. Um, he was, he was in West Side Story, one of the greatest choreographers ever. He said he would do it. And he put the whole thing together for me and choreographed it. And that fabulous dance number where Jim Spader meets Kim Richards. And mm-hmm. It's no accident. That's a fabulous dance number. That's four weeks of 20 days of eight hours of rehearse. Hmm. And it worked. Yeah. And, and that is uh, the Jim Carroll band. I know you brought in Jack Mack and the Heart Attack. Well, do you, did you I, also I, bring in Jim Carroll band as well? Yeah, for different reasons. Jack Mack was a personal experience, which launched the whole concept of the movie. Jim Carroll was a different thing. I, I was realizing that this was a need in the movie, that we were going to need a band. And, and I, I don't know about you, but I go through a period, especially in the 80s, where I'll have like 20 favorite albums and they'll just play nonstop. And I won't mm-hmm. even listen to a 30th album. And one of the albums in rotation for me was um, Jim Carroll. And I was listening to all three songs that I, I used in that movie were all on my favorite tapes mixes. You know, uh, People Who Died, Voices, and um, the other one. Um, and I just love those songs to death. Yeah. So I, I found out that Earl McGrath uh, represented him. And I called up Earl and Rosemary... Um, Carol returns the phone call, Jim's wife. She is an accomplished attorney who, who was either working for or representing Earl. And when she found out that her not making enough money, but extremely talented and semi-famous husband was being offered a movie, she wanted to return that call herself. And I explained who we are, what we were doing, how much it paid, who was going to be in it, top to bottom, and told her the best that we could afford and said that and if the movie works, obviously you know, you'll have publishing royalties that'll keep coming in, but, um, but that's the deal. And she was like, yes, yes, yes. And yes. Until Tuesday, he needs, he needs this. And, um, and it was great. Yeah. He's, I mean, yeah, he's a, such a, I, I mean, I'm a big a Jim Carroll fan and, and big fan of that, uh, those songs you're talking about in that album. Uh, the most, fun, the most fun I had on the picture was the, the night in New York after the movie was made and everybody saw it. Jonathan Elias said that he could get everybody who worked on the soundtrack together for dinner. So except Grace. And so um, we're there with um, Marianne Faithful, Southside Johnny, Patty Scalfa, who I became good friends with for a short while. And um, uh, everybody and, 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 and Jim Carroll. And I get the bill and it's 1800 fucking dollars for dinner. <laughs> Ah, well, I mean, I hope it was a great dinner. Well, all my bills in life are paid for at this time, so. <laughs> that's good. So that's good. Yeah, um, it was and wonderful. And, and, and uh, at what point did you have to change the ending for that one? Was that? Tough turf. Tough turf. Yeah. Um, no endings changed. Um, what happened was I first hired uh, Mur- Murray Michaels because um, he had another script that Joe Ackerman liked that I was interested in and um we couldn't get that off the ground but i knew he he was available and he could write and and he would work for a few thousand bucks so he knocked out a first draft and then greg collins o'neill i had a similar relationship he'd been trying to get a couple things done with me but we could never really turn the corner with it and then out of nowhere i meet ida may peterson who had a peculiar relationship with michael jackson and, um, and went by the nom de plume jet rink. 
And she had this, this one script that Michael was interested in. It was called Magic Pan or something that she was getting a lot of mileage off of, but no production deals. And um, one of the Copelands, the one who produces movie, he was interested in, in, in her. And based on all of that pedigree, I thought I'd roll the dice. And she wrote a script. She knocked it out of the park. That woman could write like nobody's business. I had to write another script for me that we never got made, like for no good reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, um, and, and then we shot the movie and I wanted the movie to be R rated because I've told you my Dolomite philosophy and <laughs> sure. And, and Kim Richards was a very heavily guarded PG actress by her agent manager and mother. Well, between Fritz and me, we convinced Kim to do it. And, and we shot a nude scene with Kim. And, um, and, and then their management um, was thinking that maybe she's going to return to Disney at one point and this will kill that opportunity. I was making the future Sharon Stone argument that hadn't been made yet. And, and the fact of the matter is that I cut my 35 millimeter print, which is on, a, on deposit at the Academy, with a fucking nude scene in it. Who's going to stop me? I'm making my own movie at that point. And mm-hmm. it's the only place that exists to my knowledge is in my print. And, and that's the only thing I know got changed. We had to go back and, and remove the nudity because uh, management made us. Okay. Um, regarding the ending itself, it didn't get um, reduced. It got expanded. I, I, had set, I had set the rap party to be, um, we, we were going to uh, rap and return the cameras and be in by like eight or nine. And, and these are really manageable decisions because I've got a shooting schedule and I know what I'm doing and I developed the script and I know what's being shot. Right. What I didn't know was the director's agenda to expand the action sequence into what you actually see on film. Oh, okay. that, that was, that was enhanced. And the way we, the way we enhanced it was we went back to Roger Burlidge and the director made a presentation and said that if, you, if I could have a little bit more time and a little bit more money, I could make the ending this much better. And we did, and we did, and we did. But what was unknown to me was that after that, he got even more ideas, which is great, especially if you're in the loop, which I wasn't. So I thought, you know, I know what's going on. I know what time we're going to finish. And, and he was happy to have that rap party because then he kept the crew and he shot for the rest of the night. And, oh. and, 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 and that's really, if you will, what made the movie expand. Um, nobody would have let him do it if he asked permission. He made the right choice, and, and I stand behind it today. Um, I wasn't mad or anything. Okay. Um, it just made the rap party very sparsely attended. <laughs> sure, sure. And that's it. That's our interview with Donald P. Borchers. There is a third part to this interview, which will come out in 2023. Um, but we want to say, if you want to watch any of the movies that we talked about, you want to talk about, uh, you want to watch any of the movies that Donald has produced, you need to go to uh, Donald's YouTube channel. You can find the link in the show notes. Um, please go visit his channel, subscribe. He's adding a bunch of new stuff and like tons of other movies as well. Yeah, like it actually yeah. is a ton of movies on there, not mm-hmm. just stuff he produced. But there's also interviews that he's done, lots of extra fun stuff. There's tons of stuff. You can go through it. You're going to get lost in there. There's a lot of stuff that he's put up. And he's putting stuff up all the time. So um, It's like check. Ryan's research as in its own episode. But, its uh, own yeah, but as a YouTube channel. That's yeah. right. Exactly. Uh, so go check out his YouTube channel uh, and subscribe to it. 
subscribe to us. Give us a five-star review if you like this episode, you like more, you want to hear more of these interviews, more of our episodes, or just follow us on social media. Tell your friends about us. Tell your enemies about us. Get I don't know how often you're having conversations with your enemies, but when you do talk to them, talk specifically just about us. Maybe it would actually be the bridge that you need to actually turn that enemy into a frenemy. Not a friend. Come on, baby steps. That's not going to be realistic with our expectations. <laughs> but also, you can follow me. I have a green car. Um, I'm bald. And if you don't want to follow me around. <laughs> also, I, follow cool Mark just around. As just a, follow me around. As, <laughs> in, in a fun, noirish way. <laughs> a fun, super fun, noirish way. Right. Maybe a little, throw in a, a, a song or two. And you know we're gonna have a blast. This is not this, gonna, and it's not gonna be weird. From from <laughs> this sort of following, it sounds like you think Sweet Kill is a fun noir. <laughs> you know, I it's more of an Avion noir. <laughs> um. So hey, yeah, you want to stick around for Noir November? We have another uh, movie that is coming out next week. Our movie is going to be Sister Sister. And we're going to have uh, Jason Kleberg from Force 5 Podcast join us for that. So make sure you check that episode out. And then we'll end the month with another interview, guys. Another nice. interview. So, so cool. So, so great. We're I'm very gonna happy about excited. it. She's I'm gonna get excited. She's going to. She's going to. Erica's going to get excited. By the end of the month, she's going to be excited. And so should you be. So thank you for listening. We'll see you next time in the New World Pictures Podcast. Bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>